morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Monday, April the 25th. Here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Officials in southern Nigeria are investigating a site where more than 100 people have been reported killed following an oil explosion that has been described as the worst in years. You know, if until you start to address the basic needs of people, and you will be shocked with nurturing their basic needs that make them go this extreme length. Former Kenyan President Mwai Kibaki, who led the country from 2002 to 2013, died Friday. He was 90 years old. So how will Kenyans remember him? During his tenure, it is when Kenya started uh, uh, implementing some of the most critical infrastructures. Uh, for example, the railway, conversation about building the SGR from Mombasa all the way uh, to Nairobi started under him. The Horn of Africa is suffering a historic drought that the UN says could result in starvation for as many as 20 million people. We'll have those stories and sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, former Kenyan President Mwai Kibaki, who led the country from 2002 to 2013, died Friday. He was 90 years old. Historians credit Mr. Kibaki, who was the country's third president, for ushering in sweeping economic reforms and a new constitution. However, critics say that he struggled to tackle widespread corruption in the country. BOS Africa 54 managing editor Vincent Makori covered Kenyan politics during Kibaki's term as vice president and then as president. He tells me that Kibaki will be remembered for reviving Kenya's economy through ambitious infrastructure projects, including roads and railways. Well, Moi Kibaki, to begin with, uh, is an economist by profession. He's a guy who actually literally joined the government uh, soon after independence, straight from university uh, to Makerere where he was known to be one of the sharpest, brightest uh, students. He graduated with uh, high honors at every level of his life. So he was a respected economist. And then when he joined the government of Kenya, way after independence under under Jomo Kenyatta, he worked, uh, of course, in different ministries at different levels. Uh, But just to jump uh, to the more recent years, he was a long-serving vice president of uh, President Daniel Arap Moi, who is also the late now. He was the vice president when Kenya was going through one of the most turbulent times uh, trying to transition from a one-party state uh, to a multi-party system. What, what would you say were some of the most important achievements of his presidency? Uh, president uh, Moi Kibaki would be remembered by many Kenyans as the person who actually jump-started the economy of Kenya that had been doing so badly under the former president, Daniel Arap Moi. So when he came to power 2002, and I covered that election, uh, I was there when he was being sworn in, he set on a path of reviving Kenya's economy. So uh, certain sectors had literally died. For example, the agriculture sector, coffee, tea, some of those were really dying. Uh, the industries like that of meat production, milk, were dead, essentially. So he started uh, by literally reorganizing the economy, the agricultural sector, the um, uh, you know the farming area. He, he he decided to deliberately go into those sectors because he believed strongly that that's where not only 
you get jobs, but that's how the country uh, would feed itself. During his tenure, it is when Kenya started uh, uh, implementing some of the most critical infrastructures. Uh, for example, the railway, conversation about building the uh, SGR from Mombasa all the way uh, to Nairobi started under him. He started, uh, he was very uh, critical for starting the infrastructure development across the country in terms of roads and bridges. And one of the biggest highways that was built under uh, Mwai was uh, the Thika Superhighway, which starts from Nairobi and goes all the way to central province and was meant to connect Kenya to even Ethiopia. And, and what would you say were his low moments where he either missed the mark or an opportunity to create a lasting change in the country? One of the promises he had given was to fight corruption. And uh, when he came in, of course, he set in motion uh, the process of fighting corruption. And uh, he even appointed a special person who was supposed to uh, to kind of be the person who is uh, you know, tasked with ensuring there's no corruption in the country. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't take long before actually corruption scandals uh, started, uh, you know, is started uh, being exposed under his uh, government. And some of the people involved in those scandals were close allies, were people in his government, people were his friends. And we had some major financial scandals. Uh, and uh, he was not able to resolve some of those. Uh, actually, most of them, a uh, few ministers may have uh, may, you know, resigned as a consequence, but none of them was really held accountable. So that is one. He did not successfully uh, fight uh, corruption as he had promised. The other one, which could be the lowest uh, moment for him, is the election of 2007. The election of 2007 was one of the most sophisticated elections in Kenya. And... Uh, a great number of Kenyans believe that he lost that election fair and square to the opposition leader then, Raila Odinga. But instead of conceding, and with the advice of some of his closest friends, he decided to stop the process of uh, announcing the election results and had himself actually sworn in, parliament, in, in the state house at night and what that did is it ignited the country. The country exploded into chaos. And the, the rest of the world can remember that 2007 goes down in the history as a time when Kenya experienced one of the worst violences. It was feared that it could even lead to a genocidal kind of killing. And many Kenyans will say it is because Kenya, uh, Moai refused to concede that Kenya plunged into chaos. Thousands of people died. Many, many, many people were maimed. And uh, that is something that will be appended to his legacy. That was VOA's Africa 54 Managing Editor, Vincent Makori. <music> Officials in southern Nigeria are investigating a site where more than 100 people have been reported killed following an explosion that has been described as the worst in years. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Vima State Commissioner for Information Declan Emelumba said officials are probing Friday's fire and explosion at an illegal oil bunkering site or bull fire in the Agbema local government area. The boundary is between the Imo State and the oil-rich River State. He said officials are also investigating the extent of deaths, injuries and damages. More than 100 people have been reported killed, burned beyond recognition. Most of them were workers at the illegal refinery 
On Sunday, emergency teams continued their response in the affected area. The explosion, which local officials say is the deadliest in years, is raising concerns. Energy expert Odion Amonfamen says the high rate of poverty and deprivation in the region is the reason many locals are endangering their lives. If you have a flow station in a community, that community must have electricity, must have some form of, uh, 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 at least some form of energy source for cooking. You know, if until you start to address the basic needs of people, and you will be short in nurturing their basic needs can make them go this extreme length. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari described the incident as a, quote, catastrophe and a national disaster, end quote. In a statement Sunday, Buhari offered his condolences to the families of the victims and said those responsible for the explosions must be caught and brought to justice. Authorities are looking for the operator of the refinery. Oil theft and pipeline vandalism have been reported in Nigeria for decades. Authorities say the country loses 150,000 barrels a day or up to $4 billion a year to these activities. In January, authorities renewed a crackdown on illegal refineries that operated by tapping crude oil from pipelines owned by oil companies. Many suspects were arrested and many sites shut down. Samuel Mwanosike is a local government head in Ikwere, one of the areas affected by the bullfire activities in the river state. Yes, I agree. Lack of job is part of it, but it's not an avenue for you to go into criminality. Because the activities that is taking the life of over 100 people, like you have seen in Lebuma, is clearly a criminal activity and should be declared as such. In the Ikwere local government, where I'm, where I'm presiding as we speak, all 285 illegal refinery spots that are that have been identified has been destroyed. Years of exploration activities by oil companies and illegal oil operators have tainted the environment in Nigeria's Niger Delta, making farming and fishing nearly impossible. Authorities have been trying to clean up hydrocarbons, but the local chief in the river state, Ibiosia Sukubo, told VOA in January that the government was not doing enough. Government is only interested in seats of the oil and gas, but they are not interested in the people. They are not interested in the environment. Experts say unless authorities and communities work together, illegal refineries will continue to put many more lives in danger. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. The death toll from several migrant shipwrecks off the Tunisian coast has risen to 17 people, a judicial official said on Sunday. On Saturday, the Tunisian Coast Guard said four boats carrying 120 African migrants headed for Italy had sunk off the coast near the city of Sfax. Another five bodies were recovered on Sunday, adding to 12 found by the Coast Guard overnight, according to the spokesperson for the Sfax courts. The Coast Guard said 98 people had been rescued. A new case of Ebola has been confirmed in northwestern Democratic Republic of Congo, prompting health authorities to enforce urgent containment measures just four months after the previous outbreak came to an end. The case, a 31-year-old male, was detected in the city of Mbandaka. Around 74 of his contacts are being tracked, the health ministry said in a statement. 
In advance of World Malaria Day, the World Health Organization recommends the expanded use of the first malaria vaccine, calling it a potential game changer in the fight against malaria. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Malaria is a preventable, treatable disease. Yet every year, malaria sickens more than 200 million people and kills more than 600,000. Most of these deaths, nearly half a million, are among young children in Africa. That means every 60 seconds a child dies of malaria. Despite this bleak news, the outlook for malaria control is promising, thanks to the development of the world's first malaria vaccine. The World Health Organization calls the achievement a historic breakthrough for science. A pilot program was started in 2019 in Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi. Since then, the World Health Organization reports more than a million children in the three countries have received the malaria vaccine. Mary Hamill is head of WHO's malaria vaccine implementation program. She says the two-year pilot program has shown the vaccine is safe, feasible to deliver, and reduced as deadly severe malaria. We saw a 30% drop in children being brought to the hospitals with deadly severe malaria. And we also saw almost a 10% reduction in all-cause child mortality. If the, the vaccine is widely deployed, it's estimated that it could save an additional 40 to 80,000 child lives each year. WHO reports Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, will provide more than $155 million to support expanded introduction of the malaria vaccine for Gavi-eligible countries in sub-Saharan Africa. The vaccine against malaria was under development before the COVID-19 vaccine was produced. Hamill says WHO has learned a lot of lessons from that effort, which could be used in the development of future malaria vaccines. You know, there's uh, that there have been new platforms that come forward, came forward with the COVID vaccine, including the mRNA platform. And now the developers of uh, one of the mRNA vac- vaccines is looking forward to developing a, uh, a malaria vaccine using that same platform. Last July, BioNTech manufacturer of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine announced it wants to build on that success by developing a malaria vaccine using mRNA technology. The pharmaceutical company says it aims to start clinical trials by the end of this year. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Daybreak Africa continues. I'm Jackson Vungani. The Horn of Africa is suffering a historic drought that the UN says could result in starvation for as many as 20 million people. In Ethiopia, more than 7 million people are already short of something to eat, the suffering compounded by the war in the north. Henry Wilkins reports from Addis Ababa. A fourth consecutive year of failed rains is causing the worst drought in the Horn of Africa since 1981. Meanwhile, the UN's World Food Programme tells VOA a combination of conflict in the north of Ethiopia and drought in the south are set to be catastrophic for the country. WFP spokesperson Claire Neville says the worst effects could be averted if action is taken quickly, but that doesn't look likely. In the 2016 to 2017 drought, this catastrophe was avoided through early action. In 2022, due to a severe lack of resourcing, there are growing fears that it won't be possible to prevent the looming disaster. 
a policy advisor for a major humanitarian donor to Ethiopia who declined to be named, told VOA that the government's focus was on the war and mobilisation for it, so there was significant lag time in doing the assessment and putting in place the response mechanisms for the drought in the south. The advisor said the cost of that inattention was a huge loss of livelihoods, assets and livestock. The advisor noted, however, that the regional and central governments have recently tried to pull together resources and are trying to address the needs in regions of the country like Somali and Aromia, particularly by rallying donors like the WFP. Aid agencies in Africa have also complained the crisis in Ukraine is drawing attention and money away from countries on the African continent. The policy advisor added the damage caused by the delayed response is irreversible and it could take years, if it happens at all, for those affected to recover. Aside from drawing attention from the drought, Ethiopia's civil war has itself been a major cause of humanitarian crises. In March, the government said it had called a humanitarian ceasefire and would allow aid into the northern region of Tigray, where it is fighting separatist forces. William Davison is a senior analyst covering Ethiopia for the International Crisis Group, a Belgian-based research group. Currently, um, despite the humanitarian truce, there still seems to be around one convoy um, of aid reaching Tigray per week. Um, so that is nothing like the unrestricted access um, for humanitarian agencies that's needed um, and we should also note that there has been no move by the federal government yet uh, to restore vital public services to Tigray, including banking, telecoms um, and electricity. The number of people in need of humanitarian assistance in the north, combined with those likely to be affected by the drought in the south, brings the total to almost 12.5 million Ethiopians in need of help, according to UN figures. The National Disaster Risk Management Commission of Ethiopia, a branch of the Ethiopian government, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Six soldiers are dead and 20 wounded after Malian army bases in the central cities of Sevare, Niono and Bafo were simultaneously attacked this weekend by suspected terrorists. Annie Risenberg reports from Bamako. An army press release says that the bases in the cities of Severe, Niono, and Bapo were attacked by terrorists in kamikaze vehicles packed with explosives, and that in addition to the casualties, a helicopter was damaged. Severe is a town in Mali's Mopti region and the site of the former headquarters of the G5 Sahel, an intergovernmental task force with member states Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. The headquarters were moved to Bamako in 2018 after an attack which killed several people. The Bapo military base is less than 20 kilometers from Segu, Mali, a large regional and cultural capital more than 200 kilometers north of Bamako. After an Islamist takeover of northern Mali in 2012, French forces intervened and took back control of the north in 2013. In the years since, insecurity has moved south into Mali's central regions. In February, France announced that it would withdraw its troops from Mali after increasing tensions between France and Mali's military government. Several governments have accused Mali of working with Russian Wagner mercenaries, a claim the Malian government denies. There have been several reports of unidentified white soldiers working with the Malian army in the Segu and Mopti regions since February. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. Malawi and Mozambique have launched a power transmission project to help Malawi meet an increasing demand for electricity. 
Malawi, one of the poorest nations in Africa, lost 30% of its power generation in January after Tropical Storm Anna destroyed its main power station. The new project is expected to generate 50 megawatts for the country when completed. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The Mozambique-Malawi Regional Interconnector Project was launched during a visit to Maputo this week by Malawi's President Lazarus Chakwera. Chakwera said the project is historic because when finished, it will establish a reliable power connection not only between the two countries but across the Southern Africa Development Corporation or SADIC. The power line has the potential to increase trade opportunities and will also create over 1,000 jobs for Malawians and Mozambicans. Malawi is facing unprecedented power shortages after Tropical Storm Anna destroyed the country's main power station in January. The destruction resulted in the loss of 30% of the country's power generation capacity. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. And with that, we go to Abuja with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sports with the semi-finalist for the 2021-2022 CAF Champions League. Petro Luanda of Angola qualified for this year's semi-finals of the early club competition on the African continent after playing a 1-1 draw with South Africa's Memelody Sundowns in Johannesburg on Saturday. Petro qualified 3-2 on aggregate after a 2-1 home win last weekend. Coach Makoba Nkiti of Sundowns said in his post-match interview that the defeats hurts a lot. I'm very proud of the boys. Unfortunate uh, that we did not uh, go through to the semi-final, but I think the boys really gave a good account of themselves and uh, probably it's us, the leadership, that would have to to take the bullet and say maybe we, we need to plan better and do better in, in the next coming matches and make sure that we improve in this space. Elsewhere, Serial CAF Champions League semi-finalist Wada Casablanca of Morocco booked a semi-final ticket despite being held nil-nil at home by C.R. Bozidad of Algeria. Wada won the quarterfinal 1-0 on aggregate. In Morocco, Egyptian giant Al-Hakli claimed a 1-1 draw away to Raja Casablanca to progress 3-2 on aggregate on Friday night. Elsewhere, Algeria's ES Satif won 1-0 in Tunisia against Osporos de Tunis to take the tie by the same scoreline on aggregate. The first leg of the semi-finals are scheduled to be played on the 6th and 7th of May and the 13th and 14th of May for the second leg, with reigning champions Al-Hakli facing ES Satif and Petro de Luanda taking on Wydad Casablanca. Staying with football news, Didier Drogba lost a controversial bid to become president of the Ivory Coast Football Federation when he was eliminated after the first round of voting at Saturday's elective congress. The former Chelsea star pulled only 21 votes in the three-way race with the two other candidates, Yassine Idris Diallo and Sori Diabate, pulling more than double his tally. Diallo won a second round to decide the presidency of the federation. In rugby news, 
Kenya survived the scare to qualify for the 2022 Rugby World Cup 7s after defeating Zambia 19-12 in Africa Men's 7s bronze medal match at the Kayodondo Grounds in Kampala on Sunday. The dethroned African champions comfortably led 12-0. At the break, however, Zambia came into the second half strongly, leveling scores 12-12 with two tries. After two days of competition, Uganda and Zambia joined automatic qualifier Kenya at the 2022 Commonwealth were games slated for July 28th to August the 8th in Birmingham, England, as Zimbabwe is still suspended from Commonwealth after withdrawing in 2003. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at bawnews.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.